This is the first episode of Food Futures, a new show from Mold Magazine. We're here because food is the greatest connector, but our food system is failing us. Today, we are at a crossroads. Moving forward, the way we design everything from farms to tableware, cereal boxes and even the cereal itself, will shape how and what we eat in the future. I'm Lin Yi Ryan, and I'm a design journalist and the founder and editor of Mold Magazine. Mold is an online and print magazine about designing the future of food. We believe that designers, with their professional training to frame the right question, work across disciplines, and consider how products live intimately in people's day-to-day lives, are uniquely positioned to offer solutions for the coming food crisis. Did you know that the United Nations predicts that by the year 2050, we won't be able to produce enough food to feed the 9 billion people on this planet? This fact completely terrifies me. There's a lot of people across the worlds of science, biology, agriculture, and technology that are offering a range of answers to how we might be able to avert this food crisis. So whether it's 3D printed food, vertical farms, food replicators like in Star Trek, drone delivery, or even eating insects. The truth is that there is a lot of misinformation out there, and there really isn't one answer. What we do know is that we believe that food is social, social, cultural, cultural, and loaded with memory and pleasure. We believe in a resilient, regenerative, accessible, nutritious, and transparent food ecology. We want to use this program to give experts in their various fields a space to help us separate fact from fiction and to inspire each of us to make a critical shift from consumers to creators. So what are some of the opportunities in the world of food design? Well, Dutch Design Week took place in Eindhoven at the end of October, and there were a few interesting student projects that came out of the presentations there, and I thought I'd probably share a couple of them with you guys today. One of the craziest projects I saw was from the student Tiu Kusters, and it's called Body Ponics. And basically, he examines the body as a source of materials to be harvested. All right. So, hi, I'm Tiu Kusters, a biosocial designer from the Netherlands. And with my project Body Ponics, I wanted to see what kind of value my own body material still possessed. And what better way to find out than to grow new life on them and to create something useful and nourishing from it. So basically, Kusters created a salad made from his body using a hydroponic system to grow lettuce, radishes, herbs, and mustard greens by harvesting waste products from his own body. So he did this by like designing a crazy sweatsuit that looks kind of like a clear plastic jumpsuit. And then he ran on a treadmill so that he was like sweating and then collected all of this sweat from his crazy plastic jumpsuit to harvest it for salt. Then he shaved his head and body hair. Um, Yes, you heard that right. He shaved his head and his body hair to create a structure for the roots of the plants. And then he started collecting his urine in plastic bottles to provide foundational nutrients or fertilizer for this hydroponic system. So using urine and waste is definitely not something that is new as far as agriculture is concerned. But within the context of a closed system like a hydroponic system, it seems kind of absurd. 
But what I really love about Cooster's project is that it really takes inspiration from things like spaceflight and the principles of a closed-loop circular economy. And he really asks you this really hard question, like, are you going to be able to be comfortable eating a salad that is really created from your own body? There were two projects from the second annual Future Food Design Awards that is sponsored every year by the Dutch Institute for Food Design. The Dutch Institute for Food Design is a great organization that's headed up by Mariah Vogelzing, who herself is a food designer, and she also leads the food program at the Design Academy Eindhoven. And so at D- Dutch Design Week, they actually announced the winner of this year's competition. One of the finalists that I really love was a project called Atoma by the student Alexandra Genus. Atoma basically seeks to reimagine the future spice pantry through a series of synthetically derived flavors. Flavors, as we experience them, are primarily a result of the way our body processes smells, both outside of our bodies, but also inside our mouth and throat through a process called retronasal smelling. If you're interested in this, there's a really great book um, called Neuroenoology, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, but it's all about kind of all the neurological things that happen when we drink wine. These things that are, that are kind of considered natural flavors are oftentimes derived from a mix of different chemicals. And so what Alexandra does is she casts these kind of flavored butters that are flavored with these kind of synthetic molecules into the shape of the actual molecular structures that these synthetic flavors um, look like under the microscope and then introduces them to home cooks as like a spice pack that you would basically take these solid butters and you'd shave them over your foods in order to introduce new kinds of flavors to your cooking at home. Um, not only does this project call attention to the fine line between words like natural and synthetic, but it also shows us a pathway to how we might introduce new flavors that are not tied to naturally occurring food sources um, to a greater public. Finally, Adelaide Tam won both the jury prize and the audience award for this year's Future Food Design Awards. So on the surface, her project basically looks like a brass paperclip. But if you dig in a little deeper, you realize that the paperclip actually represents the life of a single cow. So what Tam did is she actually collected the stun gun cartridges, um, which are basically the leftover testament to the slaughter of cows for beef production in the Netherlands. She took each of these little stun gun cartridges and transformed them um, in basically transformed the 0.9 grams of brass that these stun gun cartridges weigh into paper clips that can then be purchased in a vending machine for the same price as the cost of the bullet. This project was a clear winner because the poetics of the project highlight the ways that we assign value of life within the meat industry by creating a critical object of design disguised as a banal product. Um, One of the things that was really interesting, I was actually invited to be a jury member on this year's design awards. And um, one of the kind of conversations that happened amongst the jurists was the kind of um, existential uh, kind of fear we would have if we actually lost this brass paperclip amongst the everyday paperclips that we use uh, for, you know, in our office and what that would actually mean. And that kind of emotional resonance is a reason why um, Adelaide Tam was the winner for both the jury prize and the audience award this year. 
So this is a great introduction to our first guest on Food Futures, somebody who I have deeply admired for years and um, who I have basically just followed around and really tried to figure out like how we can work together at every possible opportunity. And her name is Momoko Nakamura. Um, so through adept storytelling and a deep passion for her work, uh, Momo basically elevates everyday products into art. Um, Momoko is also known as the Rice Girl, and she is the woman behind Kiki Musubi, which is an organic brown rice subscription service that connects the Japanese countryside with the rest of the world. It's based on the Japanese micro-season calendar, so she basically delivers 24 seasons of rice throughout the year. Um, Momo is also the person who introduced me to the idea of micro-seasons. We had talked um, maybe one or two years ago, and she was telling me about her training um, in macrobiotics and the way that uh, Japanese um, kind of traditional uh, seasonal cuisine is structured around this idea of micro-seasons. And so she, when she told me about this idea of micro-seasons originally, it just kind of blew my mind. So we're definitely going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, we also spoke earlier this week at the Museum of Food and Drink. And I have to say, when I left, I really felt like I had been eating rice wrong my whole life. And that's a really big thing to say because I'm Chinese-American and I grew up eating rice every single day. But I was like, man, I've really missed out on a solid 30 years of eating rice um, in a kind of more celebratory way. So really, Momo, I'm so excited that you're our first guest. And I'm just going to start off with a really general question, like, why rice? Mm. Um, there are so many reasons why I'm obsessed with rice. Um, but I would say, first and foremost, I think for most people, people, their food memories um, and their food obsessions begin with their childhood. And I was born in the U.S. and then I kind of lived back and forth between the U.S. and Japan. And wherever I lived, my connection with Japan was always through food and specifically always through a bowl of rice, um, which was the ultimate staple of the dinner table every single day. Um, and so the aroma the the texture, the flavor, the soulfulness, what it meant to be connected to family sitting around the dinner table, all of those elements that speak to the five senses are what I think has been ingrained in me and has carried me through all of these years. And, um, you know, Although I had, you know, multiple corporate jobs and done freelance things and run my own company and all of those things, um, I think at this point in my life, I wanted to go back to some sort of emotional center. And for me, that was rice. And so how did you go from kind of being somebody who was producing like, you know, television and and media in Tokyo to the countryside where you started these kind of relationships with uh, farmers who were farming in a traditional way in the Japanese countryside? For me, it was really a natural progression to when I moved back to Tokyo to step into the Japanese countryside to get hints as to what the future for me held. Um, Did you want to like be a farmer? Was this like, were you looking to like find your commune? Um, of course, part of me romanticizes about that <laughs> all the time. Um, but 
there's always a part of me that when I go back to Tokyo, I feel a bit of relief. Like,、mm. I like to get on my bicycle and ride around、yeah. and, you know, go to the parks and have like that level of freedom.、Um, and so, although the natural beauty of the countryside is something that cannot be matched anywhere else, and the four seasons are so gorgeous there.、Um, I have to say, I also really like an, an urban environment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>、um, but yeah, so, the, so when I went out into the countryside, I got a lots of hints. And ultimately, I think rice was not only just a personal passion of mine, something I love to eat, something I love to talk about,、um, but it is, the, it is one of the most basic commodities of Japan. Take me through a little bit about what it means to be a traditional. Japanese organic rice farmer? Because, you know, I think I would say the majority of us have never actually visited a rice farm.、Um, we really don't know that much about rice production. It's a product that we kind of take for granted. We just assume that there's going to be rice available on every grocery shelf, especially if you're at an Asian grocery store. There's like, you know, 20 different varieties of rice that you can buy.、Uh, maybe not varieties, but grain, like brands of rice. So what, is, what, is, what does it actually take to produce rice, especially in a kind of traditional setting or structure? So、um, the kind of traditional natural farming methodology is something that Um, I made up, <laughs> to be honest.、Um, but I made up because I felt like there are no other phrases that were,、um, that were speaking to that type of farming and, in English. And、um, the type of farming that I'm interested in, that I focus on, is、um, farming that leans on the lear- learnings of our. Of our past generations.、Mm. And it is pesticide, herbicide, fertilizer free. It is communicating with nature and the climate that changes vastly year to year and also changes across、um, geography.、Uh, as I think most people know, Japan is very long lengthwise from north to south. So, I mean, an easy example is it's similar to Italy in where. The, in which the north is、um, cold and you know, it can snow heavily. And in the south, it's much more warm and tropical.、Um, and so, really, based on where you are in the country, the type of landscape, whether it's、um, kind of rich soil or maybe some other parts are a little bit more sandy, you obviously have to adjust. And make little pivots based on where you're located and what sort of access you have to water and all of that.、Um, and so these farmers who farm naturally and traditionally,、um, they are able to、um, be extremely agile to their environment.、Uh, whereas your,、um, for lack of a better word, standard farming、um, is. Does use pesticides and fertilizers and herbicides. And、um, if you look at it from a positive perspective, it ensures that you have、uh, a lot of harvest every single year、um, and that the、um, grains are intact and you don't have to necessarily worry about、um, worry too much about any sort of natural, like climate related.、Um, uh, issues. Right. And you had actually mentioned earlier this week about kind of the The conventional farming practices、mm-hmm. that are being practiced amongst rice farmers in、mm-hmm. Japan、mm-hmm. um, really kind of came out of a post war、mm-hmm. 
mindset in a post-war um, kind of history. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I think that a lot of times people just assume that conventional farming or like large-scale industrial farming is something that is just part of our agricultural history, I mean, culture, that it's like the only way forward. But I think that it's really important to understand that it actually has a very short history in agricultural production as a whole. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew from uh, like the textbook, so to speak, that it was short, but to hear directly from the farmers, it really stuck with me. So for example, one of the farmers in Ehime, he's, he's in his 30s, he's young, he's just recently taken over the family business. He has like something crazy, like um, a hundred generations in the exact wow. same area. I don't even, I can't even fathom what that actually really means. But it's like, you know, it's like his family were cavemen from that. Area, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> They're they, absolutely part of the land yeah, at this point. 100%. You know, the bones are there, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and his father had always farmed in this conventional standard way. Um, and he had seen his father throughout his career. And there are two reasons why he did not want to farm the way his father farmed. And one of the reasons is because um, his father was part of kind of a union. And um, it ensures some level of distribution. And so some level of income, but you, there's a really like a ceiling there. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of financial struggle all the time. Um, and the second reason being that he was extremely ill and had become extremely ill from being around chemicals all Mm. the time, all the pesticides, fertilizers, and herbicides. So, I mean, it was just an obvious decision for the son who took over, um, to try it a different way. And it's not like, and this is where like the traditional, the phrase traditional comes in, is that it's not like he looked for nouveau ideas. Mm. It's not like he looked um, like from scratch. Mm. He actually looked backwards and said, well, how were things done before? Um, I had said to him, you know, it's brilliant that you had made this leap from conventional standard farming to fully organic farming. That's a huge risk after all of these years of and generations of farm, farming. Um, but he said it was actually just one generation, mm. a single generation, his father's, that leaned on all of these chemicals. Um, but up all the way up until his grandfather's generation, it was all traditional, organic, natural farming. Mm. And as you mentioned, it really um, changed after World War II when Japan lost to the U.S. and was forced to import a lot of things, wheat and dairy being a couple of them, and also pesticides. And so the landscape of agriculture in Japan really shifted. Now, the quote-unquote union that is um, that kind of manages all of the um, agricultural distribution in Japan, um, they sell the pesticides and the herbicides. So um, they are um, positioned to uh, showcase the benefits of Mm. using it. Um, And if you go against the grain, it's not awesome for you. Sure. For you as like somebody who is an advocate for organic Rice. Mm-hmm. And what is it like? What are the benefits like that you? Why do you believe in organic rice? Mm-hmm. So there's yuki, which means organic, um, and there are things that you can use on the OK list. That mm. so there's a huge spectrum. What I mean to say is that there's a huge spectrum. There are some farmers that use some 
some pesticides and fertilizers. And then there are some other people who don't use anything. And it's very, very difficult. Well, there's really no way to tell if you have the organic stamp in Japan what what part of the spectrum you fall on. There are other types of farming, which is the farming that I focus on, um, that is called natural farming. And this is the one that um, I'm really speaking to because the yuki, the organic now, and I probably need to sort out my my lingo when I speak about this in the future because organic is so great. I'd rather prefer to use the word natural, mm, I guess, but yeah. people understand the sure. word organic. Yeah. Right. So anyways, the, the natural farming means like literally no pesticides, no fertilizers, no herbicides, and you, you actually speak to your environment and your climate um, uh, on a daily basis. I love this idea that you had actually told me before that these farmers are in dialogue with nature. Precisely. And the reason why I'm focused on that type of farming and why it interests me is because of three main factors. The first one being that it's environmentally responsible. We um, our current generation, the ones that are managing the earth at the moment, are responsible for leaving a okay earth for the next generation um and when you in japan japan specifically is really made up of water it's an island country um it relies on water all the time its entire food culture is dependent on water whether it's sake or otherwise um so when you mess with the water you mess with the entire ecosystem and you mess with not just the ecosystem, like environmental ecosystem, but like the food ecosystem, et cetera. Mm. So the environmental responsibility part is extremely important to me and something that unfortunately is still quite um, an underground topic in Japan. Mm. The second one um, being that it is best for our health. I would rather that as many people as possible who can um, put in a little bit more, more money upfront to invest in their bodies rather than paying for expensive hospital bills later on, um, just taking care of your body. Um, and thirdly, um, I, this natural traditional farming style uh, carries on um, inherently cultural, Japanese cultural elements that can be um, good hints for the future, for our children and our grandchildren. Um, and this is something that is becoming lost very quickly. And there is um, there is there is a lot of benefit on carrying on that story. And so, speaking of these kind of traditional Japanese foodways and, and kind of ja- Japanese traditions, mm-hmm. I want to talk to you a little bit about this idea of micro seasons mm-hmm. and why, at least for Kiki Musubi, you deliver twenty four mm-hmm. sub seasons of rice. What that means and um, their rice blends. So, I want you to talk a little bit also about um, the type of varietals that you use and how you kind of decide. What type of varietal blends do you send out depending on what the season is? Because this is a concept that I think is really fascinating, but also very new for a lot of people here in the United States and in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's new for a lot of people in Japan, too. Oh, OK. All right. All right. <laughs> um, reason being, again, is that so many of these cultural, traditional things are becoming a little bit mm-hmm. like fading out. Yeah. Um, now, we all know as educated human beings that... Um, They're spring, summer, autumn, and winter, but and they span three months each. But it's not like summer suddenly turns into autumn. It's not like there's summer, hot, 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 and then suddenly one day it becomes autumn. It's every single day 
the the um, climate is evolving, the surroundings are evolving, and we get into autumn, and then we get deeper into autumn, and then autumn leads to winter. Um, so the micro-seasonal calendar in Japan really just speaks to that. It speaks to the fact that it's always, always evolving. Um, the four seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter, uh, break down into 24 seasons, and the 24 seasons breaks down into 72 seasons. Wow. So if you look at it from the most um, detailed um Format, it's 72 seasons, which essentially means that the uh, season changes approximately every five days. Mm-hmm. Um, I focus on the 24 um, seasons to just get a little, just for us to, you know, get ahead of ourselves and, you know, um, take it all in. Yeah. Um, 72 seasons seems like I can barely figure out what I want to wear when I wake up in the morning, but to also consider what what micro what season it is, is. Yeah, maybe too absolutely. much. <laughs> maybe we'll get to the 72 seasons um, later on, but I think for the f- first few years of um, of um, sharing the rice uh, through the micro seasons, I think the 24 is sure. enough. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the twenty four. So when you look at it from twenty four seasons, essentially it the seasons change about every couple weeks, mm-hmm. about every fifteen days, um, and it essentially reads like a poem. Mm-hmm. So um, on November seventh is the first day of winter, and it might sound extremely early, but again, it's just the inklings of winter. It's just the inklings. Maybe deep into the mountainside, you'll see a leaf that has like a little bit of um, icy frost on it in the mornings. Like it's just kind of those hints. Like maybe you'll see some insects on the ground um, getting ready for uh, winter hibernation. Like things are getting a little quieter. The days are getting shorter. And then you go deeper and deeper into winter. So the micro seasons are almost like another kind of dialogue with nature. And it's, is it just about kind of observing the environment around you or are there other prescriptive things that we're supposed to do during these times? Um, there's nothing that you have to do, but Japanese culture in general, um, the, the predominant religion, if you call it a religion, is more of um, uh, respecting nature. Mm-hmm. And the traditional farming style that I speak about is respecting nature. Mm, mm. So it's not like humans are at the frontier bossing everything around. It's like we're the ones who are down below taking all of the hints from nature. I love that. So the traditional farming style that I am uh, advocating for and trying to speak um, of is looking at the micro-seasonal calendar and the farmers are properly getting hints from it and then using it to... um, uh, educate themselves about what they should do next. Okay. Mm-hmm. And also there's like things that we're supposed to eat during this, the, each micro season, correct? Yeah. I mean, not some things that you have to necessarily eat, but there are obviously things that are in season. Mm-hmm. So being hyper aware of what's available seasonally. Um, and again, that obviously is different between, uh, between regions, mm-hmm. not just regions of Japan, but all over the world, clearly. Um, so just eating locally and seasonally is something that's a very fundamental uh, learning from the micro-seasonal calendar. On November 7th, the first day of winter, according to the micro-seasonal calendar, um, what type of uh, blend are you sending out for this season? Because I want to understand like um, how you decide what kind of rice to send out 
across like you know 24 different blends across the the year. Mm-hmm. So the micro seasonal calendar is extremely useful for me because I'm able to introduce as many varietals as possible. Mm-hmm. There are over 300 varietals of rice grown in Japan, and there are rice. Um, farming regions all across the country, literally from snowy Hokkaido all the way to extremely tropical Okinawa. So in like the United States, we're kind of familiar with maybe three or four rices. We also just kind of categorize brown and white, right? Yeah. But we also know there's arborio, there's um, basmati mm-hmm. and Carolina gold. Mm-hmm. So um, in Japan alone, there's 300 types of rices. Precisely so. And in order, in order for me to um, to introduce as many of those varietals as possible, I kind of jump on the micro seasonal bandwagon to, <laughs> to show to introduce them. Um, what I do is um, I introduce the varietals that I think are most. Uh, delicious to eat in each season. So for example, in midsummer, I would introduce varietals that are a little bit more al dente, a little bit lighter, um, maybe go well with um, spicy foods mm-hmm. um, like curries and that sort of thing that um, where you would eat in warmer climates. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas midwinter, the rice varietals will be a lot denser, a little bit more like have a chewy component, maybe a little hints of like a mochi type texture, um, and will likely be a, a fatter grain. Um, so de- really depending on the season, I think that the type of rice varietal you just innately want to eat is very, very different. Um, some people think that eating rice um in the middle of summer seems heavy, like you'd rather just eat a salad or something. But if you really just focus on the rice varietals that are appropriate for the season, then eating rice can be really light and delicious as well. Mm. Um, in the United States, we, we just don't have as many words to describe things like texture. And in Japanese, there's supposed to be over 300 words that people use to describe texture. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the words that you're using to share uh, descriptions about these different types of seasonal blends. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's loads of words to describe um, texture, sound, aroma, all of those things um, in Japanese. But uh, to date, there have been a little um, to no words that properly describe rice. Um, and I think it's because it's just one of those things that people just assume to be on the table and they don't speak, they don't have many phrases uh, to speak about it. Um, and I'm actually currently in communication with a sake sommelier who's coming up with essentially his own dictionary of words because obviously sake is made out of rice and those so same flavor profiles would um, be shared across the board. The, the terms that I use are more like about density. Um, so is it kind of light, light and airy or is it kind of dense and chewier? Um, and then and you do it on like kind of X, Y axis, right? Precisely. Yeah. And then the, um, other spectrum being about like, um, moistness, um, and the, that those levels obviously depend on the varietal, but it also depends on which region of Japan it was it was grown. So it could be the exact same varietal, but whether it was grown in the south of Japan or the north of Japan, the the outcome is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, the outcome is also different if, you know, person A grows it versus person B grows it. So um, being more cognizant of that, just like you would be if 
if you were comparing wineries and grape varietals, it's really the same thing. Yeah. Um, and similar to grape production, it takes an entire year to grow rice, right? That's precisely. something I learned from you earlier this week. I had no idea. Yeah, it takes an entire year to grow rice, which means that the farmers don't get paid unless they actually have a fantastic harvest. Um, and so they are putting all of their eggs in that basket. Mm. Um, and it spans the entire year where you're growing seedlings in the beginning of in late winter, beginning of spring, and then you then you plant them and then you um, watch it grow and make sure that you're weeding and all of that. And then you harvest and it really does take the entire year. So it's an entire year of commitment, confidence, love, um, and like conversation, and right? Yeah, and absolutely. With, with the season, which I really love. Yeah. Um, and then kind of the last thing I want you to kind of share with our audience is your secret to making brown rice perfectly every time, because I've literally been thinking about this nonstop since <sighs> I learned this amazing kind of uh, process from you. So mm. um, I know that we don't have a video of this right now, but mm. I, if you could maybe talk a little bit about it. Absolutely. Um, a lot of people seem to have um, create a lot of hurdles for themselves about brown rice, um, and particularly in Japan, where, in fact, most people eat white rice. Yep. And I'm super pushing brown rice because that's where all of the nutrients, mm -hmm. um, vitamins, and flavor is, frankly. Um, and so I focus on how to prepare brown rice every time, partially for the international audience, but very much in part for the Japanese audience as well. And I break it down into the seasons, of course. What else would I break it down into? <laughs> I break it down into the seasons. So this is how I remember. It's only four steps. The first step being that you, you know, kind of wash the rice and then you stick it into the pot. And you put it on um, medium heat, which I call spring. So for every cup of rice, like, and it can be a cup, meaning like a coffee cup. or It can be any kind of vessel. Yeah. For every portion of rice in a vessel, you put one additional. Is that right? Oh, for every cup of rice, you put double the amount of water. Okay. All right. Yeah. So what you do is you, uh, yeah, so if you want to rewind, essentially you... Um, you know, scoop out as much rice as you want, and then you uh, wash it carefully, and then you stick it into the pot, which I recommend a Dutch oven or a um, clay pot, and you uh, put it on medium heat, which is um, which I call spring. Uh, it comes to a boil very, very slowly, maybe taking ten minutes, uh, and once it comes to a slight boil. Then you put it on high heat, which I call summer, and it comes to a roaring boil and all of the rice grains are dancing wildly for like about a minute. You put a little pinch of salt to bring the energies of the earth, which is where the rice is grown, with the energies of the ocean because Japan is made out of ocean and land. Uh, and then you uh, turn the heat to low, which I call autumn, and you put the lid on for the very first time. And you wait about 30 minutes and you turn the heat to, you turn the heat off, which I call winter, and you just keep the lid on and wait for about 10 minutes to do its final steaming. Then you can open the lid and fluff it a bit. Like that's literally it. It's spring, summer, autumn, winter. Mind blown. <laughs> I'm going to think about that every time I make rice now, Momo. I'm so excited about trying it this weekend. Um, 
Thank you so much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you for sharing your knowledge. Thank you for your work. Um, if we wanted to participate in uh, the Kiki Musubi subscription service, how do we do that? Yes, the subscription service um, can be uh, reviewed and accessed and purchased on the website, Kiki Musubi, K-I-K-I-M-U-S-U-B-I.com. Musubi.com. Um, and, and you deliver to the United States, right? Yes, exactly. The US, the UK, the EU, Singapore, and Hong Kong. Very exciting. Um, and last question, what does Kiki Musubi mean? So Kiki Musubi is a little bit of a made-up phrase, but Kiki is the um, kind of the chi energy and also speaks to the micro-seasonal calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, and Musubi is uh, another word for rice ball, the triangle rice ball. Mm-hmm. And it also means um, tying two things together. So, you know, my advocacy work is really about connecting the Japanese countryside and the rest of the world, as you say, and bringing those people together. Thank you, Momo. Thank you for being our first guest on Food Futures. I'm so thrilled uh, to share your work with everybody who's listening today. Yay, thank you. If you guys have any questions about any of the things we talk about today, please don't hesitate to reach out to us, um, editors with an S, at thisismold.com. Feel free to, like, ask questions about these projects or check out the website for additional information. This is Lin Yi signing off from Chinatown, New York City. 